I want us to become brothers again like we used to be, and for us to find ourselves and bond with each other. Can we agree to that? Opinions vary. Welcome to Three Brothers Filmcast, a monthly roundtable podcast where the brothers behind Three Brothers Film discuss a chosen movie as well as broader topics in film culture. As always, we want to thank everyone who's been listening to our podcast since it debuted, and once again encourage you to join our conversation on film and film culture. Do please consider leaving a rating or review, or mention us to your friends and family. Reviews help new listeners find us, and help us carve out a niche for real, substantive conversations about movies, as well as letting us know what you're enjoying, or not, about the show. I'm Anders Bergstrom, and today I'm here with my brothers... Anta. And Aaron. My last name is the same as my brother's. And this week, we're taking a trip back 20 years to the early years of the new millennium and talking about A Knight's Tale, the Heath Ledger star vehicle from writer-director Brian Helglund. We'll talk about the film's cult status, how it holds up on rewatch, and what it tells us about how movies have changed in the last two decades. Also, as theaters begin reopening across North America, we'll use it as an opportunity to discuss what, if anything, the summer movie season means, and what if any, films we're looking forward to. Okay, Ramblers, let's get rambling. Someday, I'll be a knight. Yes, William. If he believes enough, a man can do anything. We could do this. In one month, we could be on our way to glory and riches none of us ever dreamed of. You can't even joust. I think he's getting worse. He is getting worse. I won't spend the rest of my life as nothing. You have to be of noble birth to compete. So we lie. The summer of 2001 was a unique time period. The early years of the new millennium, before the fateful events of September 11th, later that fall, would change society and movies in significant ways forever. The dominance of franchises had yet to completely eat up the blockbuster or popcorn film, though The Mummy Returns and Jurassic Park 3 showed an audience appetite for sequels in the traditional sense, before they were conceived of as franchises. Even superhero films weren't really on the radar. While X-Men the previous year had been a modest hit, it wasn't until 2002 that Spider-Man really kicked off the modern superhero dominance. What we do see in the 2001 summer movie season was plenty of variety of films in terms of genre and popularity, if uneven in quality. Some of the major films from that summer included DreamWorks' Shrek and Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor that May, while in June the first Fast and Furious film debuted what is now a still ongoing franchise. Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge debuted at Cannes that spring, and Steven Spielberg's sci-fi epic AI was heralded with mixed reviews. Scary Movie 2 and Legally Blonde showed that comedies could still be hits. I, I don't want to belabor the point, but clearly the movie-going environment was quite different from today's. And so, A Knight's Tale arrived in the middle of May 2001, a minor hit featuring rising star Australian heartthrob Heath Ledger, who had gained an audience for his role in the loose Shakespeare adaptation 10 Things I Hate About You, and supporting roles in films such as Mel Gibson's The Patriot the previous year. A Knight's Tale has interest for this very reason alone, as Ledger would of course go on to greater acclaim in films like Brokeback Mountain and his all-time legendary performance as the Joker in The Dark Knight before his untimely death in January 2008. But A Knight's Tale is of interest beyond being an early Ledger star role. It is ostensibly a medieval adventure comedy, positioned as a break from the usual action focus of most medieval films. There are no large-scale action scenes or castle sieges. 
It's focused on an individual story rather than on historical events or world imperiling danger. It attempts to inject some anachronisms, like classic rock songs, in order to demonstrate a kind of emotional connection with the audience, rather than adhering to the kind of realism most historical films do. While A Knight's Tale may have seemed to be a new take on the genre of knights and castles, looking back after 20 years, it feels thoroughly a throwback. Mostly free of CGI, it's a traditionally filmed affair, with real sets and elaborate costume work. The central conflict is about whether Popper William will succeed in his ruse impersonating a noble knight, win the tournament, and the hand of the Lady Jocelyn, played by Shannon Sossman. While the inclusion of real historical figures, like Paul Bettany's Geoffrey Chaucer and James Purefoy as Edward the Black Prince, provides the film with some interesting historical portrayals, but certainly doesn't alter the history in a major way. I remember seeing the film twice in theaters, since it was an enjoyable enough film that I wanted to watch it with multiple groups of friends at the time. Of course, in those days, before home streaming and before being a middle-aged man with kids as I am now, I saw lots of films on repeat in theaters. Watching it for the first time in well over a decade and a half, I was curious if A Knight's Tale would hold up. Is it an unappreciated cult classic or just a piece of early aughts nostalgia? And what does Knight's Tale tell us about how movies have changed in the last 20 years? So to start off, what stood out most to you, Anton? I think the thing that stood out the most to me on rewatch was how the anachronistic use of music um, actually kind of works, but it's more limited than I remembered it being. Like, it's it's actually not all... Like, all the music isn't, you know, um, a classic rock song. There's still, you know, uh, a score that comes in at times. Um, but at the very beginning, when, you know, we're getting uh, We Will Rock You, well, the, well, the joust, uh, well, the joust is setting up, and, like, I think one of the best parts of the movie is that little moment where, like, uh, there's, the like, the guitar riff at the end of the song, and you see that, like, uh, the trumpets are playing, and as soon as they lift up their horns, the song ends, and it's, like, as if the trumpets were playing that rock song. Yeah. You know, and, like, that, to me, on rewatch, I was like, oh, like, you know what? I actually think that works. It's interesting in a way, in like, it's still interesting 20 years later, but I was like, oh, but, like, this movie's actually not as anachronistic in other ways. No, actually, there's only, I think, in the credits, at least 10 rock songs credited in the whole thing, which in today's sort of jukebox, uh, Gardens of the Galaxy, you know, world uh, seems pretty limited. I think it's it's funny looking back at a movie like this, watching it again over, it's been well over a decade since I've seen it, and it's a movie that I watched a lot in the past, whether it's, it was a popular film to watch in school I think I did that multiple times, both in end of elementary and in, in high school. There was definitely a nostalgic enjoyment going back and revisiting a film like this, which, as you point out in your, your opening preamble, Anders, it, it's situated at that point before 9-11, before the superhero craze, before Lord of the Rings kind of changed what we think of as blockbusters that fall, before CGI took over. And a comment that, you know, we've personally always or have made to each other or in some of our reviews, which is that movies that from the beginning of a decade often are more like the films of the past decade than, than the ones to come. So a film like Knight's Tale really has those 1990s hallmarks where it's like crisp filmmaking, really, really conventional writing where it like leans on the three-act structure so hard. But as I've said in other things, is almost refreshing when you compare it to movies nowadays, which have no real structure at all. You know, you have a star on the rise. You have this kind of fun, cheeky pop culture approach with the music. The fact that it's a medieval film and people were cued in with medieval films, whether it's Braveheart, 
or, or other films at the time, whether it's First Night, whether it's Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, that you're gearing up for a big battle, and this movie never does that. And so despite the whole nostalgic thing and being like, oh, this is kind of a fun throwback and the music I remember so much and I remember it's like, oh, this is Heath Ledger as, as a Hollywood action star. The thing that kind of shocked me the most is Night's Tale plays hugely as a sports movie. Yes. Like it is 100% just a high concept. You can you could imagine some like coked out 90s writer guy being like in Hollywood. Okay, so we're going to take a medieval film and we're going to take Rocky and we're going to smash them together and you're going to get the underdog you're gonna get the idea that oh he's gonna he's gonna become a knight and so you know you know it's the way that in in reality and in his um in our society the way you can get better sports man you go from the streets and you go to the top and it's like it's just taking all those cliches and and inspirational things that we attach onto sports and just doing it in the medieval film and it works surprisingly well in that sense and so now understanding genre a bit better and understanding how films are structured and what they're playing with in terms of like the larger Hollywood history. It's just, I'm almost shocked that I didn't think of it that way before. Yeah. And in fact, that's on the, on, if you go back and look at the Rotten Tomatoes page now, it's like one of the critics things literally says, once you strip away the medieval trappings and things, this is basically a Rocky type movie. I I think it's like a, like, I, I think you're definitely right that it's a sports movie. Um, I mentioned that it's a, you know it is a historical film, and then the other thing it's operating in though is also right it's a, ro- a romantic comedy. Yes, and it's also like a teen heartthrob focused around Heath Ledger, right? Like that, that's part of the genre too. And it's like it's actually the mix of all those probably those three genres that's going on, and that that's maybe what actually makes this movie still interesting twenty years later is that it's interesting that we get this very interest this movie that's very invested in jousting as like a sport and how you would actually like um what are the techniques you're going to use in that how would you actually get success in it and then it, mm-hmm. on rewatch i was like wow this is like you know this is very much like a a 90s sort of teen romance i think that's a really good point um about it being the 90s teen romance because and i think a lot of that comes out of as you said the casting of ledger who at that point would have been best known for, as I mentioned, 10 Things I Hate About You and his uh, role in The Patriot as Mel Gibson's son, right? Yeah. And so he was sort of the, and he was sort of like meant to be like the, the, the handsome young new Australian star, right? Which he's part of a long tradition of Australian heartthrobs, right? Today, even we have like our Hemsworths and stuff. And I rewatched, like, I rewatched this movie with my wife, who, um, when she was young, was very much into Heath Ledger and she points out that this was the movie that really fixed him you know in her mind that like she had seen 10 things I hate about you like that you know like it was very much a, a Shakespeare teen comedy but this was the movie that she was like oh like you know like she got really into Heath Ledger after this movie and so like this was the the earlier one sort of set it up but this was the one that really like launched him and mm-hmm. sort of like a heartthrob I think I think the other interesting thing is that if we think about this as a romance, a romantic comedy, in its structure and its movement toward reconciliation and the couple coming together in the end and things, uh, which is kind of funny after you know Ten Things I Hate About You and the Shakespeare, and then the, there's the, we'll talk we can talk about Chaucer in this, and it's interesting he jumps from Shakespeare to Chaucer in sort of a strange way. I want to connect it back to the use of music because when it was advertised, and when I think if I recall its initial reception was that it was kind of uh, postmodern, 
quote, right? Like at the way people understood that term at the time. Is yeah, just like, the idea of having the music. Yeah. Like we will rock you with knights. With people were like, whoa, like that's that's weird. Yeah. And I actually found that weird when I watched it. But looking back at it now, I think uh, partly because soundtracks are so, uh, you know, uh, sorry, rock and pop soundtracks are so much part of the landscape. And it doesn't seem so uh, maybe scandalous or genre bending. We can see how earnest this movie is. This movie is not a cynical, ironic, uh, postmodern film. This is, it plays with pastiche, it, where we've already talked about how it jams together so many different genres. But one of the things that struck me and it, was that this movie is like, it really believes, or at least wants to sell its like uh, central story about like, can a man change its, his stars, right? Like, how did the nobles become noble in the first place, huh? They took it at the tip of a sword. I'll do it with a lance. A blunted lance. Oh, no matter what, a man can change his stars. And I won't spend the rest of my life as nothing. Like that, it, it really is like earnest in the way that like Rocky is earnest or that like a yeah, film like that. Yeah, for earnest, sure, right? for sure. And that makes Rocky a great, you know, um, a great antecedent to this film for its earnestness in its pursuit of this underdog rising up. So I guess what I'm just, to sum that up, it's like, it seems like, pastiche and postmodern pastiche but it's it has a it doesn't have the distance that uh, we associate with that and in fact the music i would argue as you point out actually serves to i mean one could imagine in a sort of diegetic sense that the filmmaker is putting those songs in because those for their emotional affect that they have on the audience which is it's mostly music for like older or baby boomers and people who grew up in the 70s and stuff like that, right? And the emotional connections that they would have with being played at sporting events and bars and things like that, right? And as you say, like the trumpet cuts and we the music ends. And obviously the trumpets aren't playing the guitar solo, right? So what it, so what it, I'm trying to say is that like the it's just trying to give us the emotional attachment that the audience at the joust would have had the audience at the joust would have yeah. heard maybe their trumpets and things like that but they would have been gotten pumped up for the event yeah and that's what makes that's that's actually what makes the use of like a, a, a classic rock score in a medieval setting interesting is that it is not just um you know playing these songs for the audience now it's playing those so particular songs in order to get the audience now into the mindset and feelings of the characters then. So exactly. it plays We Will Rock You to be like, because a joust for people in the Middle Ages would have been like, you know, the excitement a football of, game. Yeah, of a football game, of hockey, of, of seeing that sporting event. And same thing with the, the dancing. This becomes very, you know, explicit in the dancing when it starts with the medieval dance music and the medieval dance um, movements and then transitions into... Uh, like, right, David Bowie, Golden Years. Yep. And the way it transitions, right, it, it's telling the audience they're not actually dancing to Golden Years. We're playing Golden Years so that you can understand what it would have felt like to be in a medieval dance. Because yeah. you can't, because if you're watching a medieval dance, you're going to be like, and oh, that's lame, little... that's not sexy, <laughs> there's no, there's nothing fun or exciting about that. But they want you to put you in that. And it's that's what actually makes it interesting. 
it's exactly Baz Luhrmann's approach in his movies, and he's he specifically talked about it in Great Gatsby as using hip hop as a means of getting the excitement and energy of a jazz party from the twenties because jazz is considered old now. So he used music that we mm. consider hot and cool, and so it, it it totally is that. And the Golden Years transition in scene, the diegetic transition, tells us where the intents of the filmmakers lie and where the success lies. Because I actually think that's probably the best scene in the movie on like a filmmaking level. The way that it lure, it completely sucks you in as it sucks the characters in. It shrinks the world to William and, and Jocelyn. And it creates this magic, right, in the dance because it invests you in the fact that she comes to save him with the throwing the moves. Every, brings everybody else in, brings us into that moment between the two of them and then says that, see, they're, they're having this excitement and this spark between the two of them, but now we have to have a music cue that brings you into the spark. I mean, I love that song in general. It's one of my favorite Bowie songs, but I just think that even more than the We Will Rock You, even more than the Boys Are Back in Town or the, the training montage to Low Rider, that is the scene where you can tell everything's working together and there, there doesn't have that either ironic distance, which um, a lot of filmmakers use needle drops for, or the very winking jukebox modern thing, which is like, hey, 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 I got good taste. Don't you know? Don't you know? Right, because it's obvious taste. It's not. <laughs> but the, like, the low rider selection, like that to me was an example of like, that could be any movie, whether you play low rider as a mon- montage for like, you know, their training. Around, yeah. And that one wasn't, like it's not necessarily getting us into the mindset the way that some of these other selections are. That's just um, 90s filmmaking. Yeah. Exactly. Well, yeah, no, but like in terms of 90s filmmaking and montage, it even has one of those montages where um, you keep getting the same shot and the characters reacting in different yeah. ways to the thing going on. Uh, well, what's the moment? I can't. It's the moment when he keeps getting bashed because he's yes. trying to lose for Jocelyn and it's just the three, Esquire and, and the bl- um, blacksmith and they're all just like the shards of wood are flying over their head and they're like, oh, this is getting boring now. And Alan Tiddick and Mark Addy and uh, Laura Fraser. Yeah. The but in terms of the the other thing about nineties filmmaking, it's like I was actually I forgot how like bare bones movies sometimes were in the sets and stuff like that. But it it felt tangible and real in a way. And I was actually really actually interested and invested in the stunts this time around. Like they literally had people ride on horses and do jousting. Oh yeah, right. And I, I read a little bit about the, the the making of so like the the lances were made out of special like balsa wood so and they like filled them even sometimes with like spaghetti and things so that when they crashed they just like look like shattering like wood all over the place and they trained you know stuntmen who were good on horses to to do this I'm like that's awesome like today it would totally be like let's say Chris Hemsworth on like a CGI horse and then like you know it just wouldn't have the impact pardon well, the pun but like and the cinematography for like. Uh, the tilting, right? Like the the yeah. jousting, like is actually really good. And the way that you know, like it's not a huge distance that they're charging. The um, the use of camera angles, the editing, like it actually creates pretty compelling action sequences. I've I found like you know, I was like, these are like it's good. Like it's exciting to watch the the jousting scenes. But it's simple, right? Like it's like yeah, and it's not like it's not overly flashy, right? It's like not trying it, to draw know, attention. It's not to... a Zack Snyder action scene. Um, there's like it's not drawn out slow mo, but it it's fairly straightforward. But it's like well done, and in the times it chooses to do a little bit more flashy of like, well, we'll put a camera that's sort of swinging alongside or or something, 
is all very like well done, but it's also clear and straightforward. Yeah, it's that cla- it's classical Hollywood style from like the '90s. It's like you know the the camera work is not trying to draw attention to the camera work. And we should clarify, right? Like we're I think it was Aaron's point. We're saying you know this movie embodies '90s filmmaking coming at the very beginning of the the 2000s, right? Like as a, as a final sort of gasp of that before 9/11 hits, changing the socio-political landscape, and then before things like uh, the Lord of the Rings. That, that Christmas, the next year, Harry Spider-Man Potter, throws everything up. Yeah, Harry Potter, yeah. too. Harry Potter, yeah, uh, that'd be November. The other thing, too, though, is that in the 90s, however much they had, you know, sequels and trilogies, you had films like Independence Day, you had Jurassic Park, you had Men in Black, they did operate largely as that kind of last gasp of the star system in Hollywood. And so mm-hmm. this movie really does set up as like a Heath Ledger star vehicle, where you can tell the filmmakers are like, we're going all in on this young cute australian guy and he's gonna be a big star and you know they're correct like he he did become a big star and even in the short career he still kind of looms large over the 2000s but (laughs) in some of this talk of like yeah how not necessarily like loose the filmmaking is but just there is a perfunctoriness to it as well that is like i i was laughing at points throughout the movie like the first time um prince edward the black shows up and i'm like it's just it's so obvious if you've read any like three act screenwriting <laughs> book yeah, they, or like know anything about conventional Hollywood you, when he shows up structure. At the end, you no, know. when he shows up early on, where it's like you know he, he'll be oh, at the end. Where it's okay. like we have yeah. it's like it's totally a screenwriter being like we have to write back. Okay, we have to have somebody make him a real knight at the end to give the payoff. So we have to write back. So we have to have royalty show up. And then we okay, who's a royal at the time? Okay, Edward. Edward was considered a great knight. He never became king. He died before he could be, but everybody said would have thought that he would have been the great king. You know, they don't know any history beyond the fact that he was the prince at that time. And so they're like, okay, we're going to insert him. And he, understanding that he's in disguise, so it's a parallel. It's a, you know, it's a binary. So it hits the theme there, and then it sets yeah. up so he's going to save him later. And we have to have, but wait, we have to have the bad. We have to have yeah. the bad knight. <laughs> Our wonderful, wonderful man, Rufus Sewell, who... I almost feel bad for him in this movie. Here's the thing. I love him in this movie because he plays such a beautiful, snide asshole. But I also feel bad because I swear this movie ruined his career. Because you had films before this where they would cast him as the, the protagonist. And mm-hmm. after this movie, he would never be cast as the protagonist yeah, Dark, again. Yeah, Dark City. Yeah, two years before that. Three years. But it's, but like, he, it's ever, basically ever since Rufus Sewell's just playing the jackass knight who's snide, who's mean who thinks he's better than everyone else. Well, like, even the way even he delivers some lines... Even in the lines, High Castle. Even, or even, even the father. In the father. <laughs> yeah. The way he delivers some of the lines is this, you're like, Hollywood really has, thinks that you all you are is, like, the dark, seething British jerk in films. And it's, again, it's a 90s Hollywood thing where he's got dark hair. Heath Ledger has light hair. He wears dark armor. Heath Ledger has nice, shiny armor. And just the way that some of these 90s-isms work or, and, and conventional things work their way into the movie, like, the thing that made me laugh so hard for how obvious it is, too, was at the end when he finally puts him on his back. And, you know, he's been mm-hmm. saying the whole... He says multiple times, you'll look up at me from the, sm- you know, the flat of your yep. back. And Rufus Sewell's come back to him throughout the movie, right? You have been weighed, you have been measured, you have been found wanting. Next time I face you, Count Edamar, you look up at me from the flat of your back. Please. You have been weighed, you have been measured, and you have been found wanting. And then yeah. at the end, and they have they all they their all heads pop over, in yeah. to be like, you've been weighed. It's a, it's a classic 
three times the callback has to be for the catharsis, the payoff. But the joke there is that none of the other characters are there to witness him say it the other two times. So I'm like, yeah. how do they know the lines to like do the comeback? I it's think the that sequence Hollywood. is actually because the way it plays, it's he's hit off the horse. You get a flash of white. Yeah, and then them they, looking down at him. Then they're looking down at him, but then it flashes it back to him falling. Then yep. it might even be like in his mind. Yes, absolutely. Like it's not even necessarily because they're all on like the side. They're happens. still on the side watching. It, yeah. yeah, it's so the, as you said, the perfunctoriness, the kind of obviousness at times. It's cornball. Yeah, I think at the time, a lot of people were unfair to it because, or maybe it wasn't unfair, but like at the time, this you could be like, this is just cliched. 90, Hollywood filmmaking, right? Like in a lot of ways, the movie's but, not really but movies, trying to be sophisticated. No, right? it's not. It's a, it's a, it's a meant to be a crowd pleaser. It's meant to be like accessible to everyone. But nowadays, everyone, even in like mainstream stuff, is trying to overthink everything so much that like it like becomes like convoluted. And like, there's something about like, yes, it's obvious, but you know what? That's the whole point. <laughs> but it's it's obvious, but it's also. Um... Like, what Aaron's describing about, you know, the redundancies built into the screenplay, the, you know, the repetitions to make sure everyone's super clear about what's going to happen, and nothing really happens in the movie that you're not expecting, but there's a certain clear, hard structure to the film that does seem lacking in a lot of current films that are like, you know, like, obviously that not every movie needs to have that hard structure. But when I go to see like a blockbuster or just sort of like an uh, an enjoyable action or romantic comedy, sometimes you want those anchors to just enjoy the film and the genre. And nowadays, I think you're right that like too many films are trying to do too much, or they're trying to be more like complex than I don't strive to be. And this this looking back on this, you're like, there's a it's nice that like it's sort of simple clarity is actually refreshing i found i am less you know i don't love everything about it but i'm less generous to modern filmmakers i actually think i'm gonna hit again a point that i think i said in the last episode when talking about some of the oscar noms which is filmmakers nowadays have no grasp of structure none and it's it's kind of similar to a person learning to write poetry. Do you think it's for something choice or, or like I think well, of... no, is that they've they've understood that you can. It's like it's like the whole thing that people say about Picasso, right? Picasso had to learn to draw a brilliant life lifelike painting before he could do cubism, but everybody after Picasso thinks that oh, I can just draw cubism. Yeah, and it's like no, no, no. You have to understand what you're drawing before you can deconstruct it. Yeah, in yeah. the bet in the best you know free verse is written by people who understand poetry yeah. and could write metered poetry. And, and so however much I... Like, I don't want every movie to be Knight's Tale. But the thing <laughs> is, is that if you if you hew to this tried-and-true formula, because it is a formula, it really is, if you hew to it and you play it earnestly like this film does, if you have some interesting uh, formal angles like the anachronisms, if you have a winning lead actor, if you have competent production design and you just have a general entertainment quality to it, it does its job, you know? The movie's never going to be anything more than, like, an enjoyable, somewhat interesting um, pastiche film of, of various genres and, and film styles, but, like, the movie is sure-footed and, sure, like, it's it's sound in its construction. So the whole thing is, like, when you're, when you're hearing to that formula, you know you have a solid foundation to build on, but if people try and circumvent that, I don't need that, the movie can be a disaster, and it often is. I will say one 
I'll, I, you know, I, I think I was for a long time, at least in my mind, a bigger fan of this movie than, than you guys. But, you know, um, I think I share a lot of your praise for this at the moment. I'll give one criticism of it in which the film uh, sort of foreshadows some of the negative directions that Hollywood filmmaking has gone mm-hmm. in the time since. This movie's too long. Yeah, definitely. It's it, You should cut 20 to 30 minutes from this movie. If it was a 110-minute movie, it would be much better than being, uh, you know, a two-hour and 15-minute movie. Most of the scenes have excess footage. Most of the scenes have shots them like, you don't need that. Like, that could have been cut out. They, they should have um, just cut the flashbacks Just like someone entirely. looking around, yeah. you know, just they're like, they, they add an extra shot of someone looking around to establish, like, what's going to happen. But there's also some, like, things they add in there to try and hit the, I think, try and hit the sports thing, like, really hard. Like, there's that amusing scene when Chaucer and them go to the pub, and they're, like, ra- like you know, arguing with the French guys. And it's totally, a like, a British football hooligan scene where, like, they're even doing a song about William. Mm-hmm. Like, they're like, Ulrich yeah. von Lichtenstein, Lichtenstein. And, like, it's totally supposed to be, like, oh, you know, the, Brit- the Brits in the audience are going to love this because it's totally, like, football back then. But I'm like, this scene serves no purpose whatsoever. But, I like, I would, I guess I would say that, like, my view on the movie being too long is more that the scenes are a little bit bloated or have fat to trim rather than, like, like, I think you could cut out a scene like that, but, like, it's less that there's, like, scenes that I have no purpose No, that, that's fair. Just, like, but it's just, it's just funny how the movie will... The movie will... You can tell that there's also the cynical um, screenwriter approach, like the Hollywood approach, where it's like, you cut anything where, it's, if it's comprehensible, you cut out the thing. So there's never a scene where, like, the blacksmith agrees to come with them, because the second she helps them learn to dance, they're like... People are going to get clued in and understand she's part of the gang now. Just like there's never a scene that establishes why, like, Rufus Sewell's villain is following William. He just shows up there. Like, there's nothing setting up why he should suspect William is a fake. Ever. In the film. And then he just does because it's like, well, that has to happen for the the triumphant real knighting to happen. So that's what I'm talking about with the perfuncti. I'm not trying yeah. to, I'm not no. actually like praising it across the board. It's kind of, it's cliched and it's corny. I think it works ultimately, but mm. I'm not going to say like it's a triumph of, of genre. It's just like the elements I like enough. So I think we've talked, you know, about the structure, the, the filmmaking. Uh, I think we all found it to be, you know, enjoyable but is it more than that is it more than just a uh you know competently made early 2000s early Heath Ledger star vehicle or what would be the compelling reasons for someone to seek this out specifically today what did you guys think is there anything well I think first of all I'd say that I think unfortunately it's probably one of the best Heath Ledger star vehicles we have looking back you know, with him dying, you know, like, I'm not saying it's his best role, but if we want to sort of see um, one of his major early performances where he's the main character um, and he draws in the audience, like, this this would be it. And so it holds a, you know, a film history interest for that. I think for that alone, it'd be worth remembering. Yeah, because most of his other major roles, I would say, that are worth remembering are... Uh, more art house and or aside from the Dark Knight, right? Like so, like Brokeback Mountain, his his role in Monsters Ball later this same year that he got acclaimed for. Uh, I'm not there, the, the Bob Dylan film. He obviously has lots of other but, but, great yeah. performances and better performances, but one where he like got to be like the main character, the Hollywood star, and in a more conventional sort of film. Like I, the other thing I thought I found enjoyable, and I think people today might find enjoyable, is going back and seeing uh, a lot of like actors in small roles. We've mentioned Rufus Sewell 
uh, is enjoyable. But like even the supporting cast, for the most part, I, I, I quite like them. Uh, seeing people that I hadn't you know seen in movies for a long time. I mean, I, I'm not sure what happened to Shannon Sossaman. Her career kind of. Well, I, I think I kind of know it was uh, the the rules of attraction, the adaptation of Brett Easton Ellis novel that kind of derailed her career. But you know, for a, a while, uh, she was kind of a you know up and coming actress. But the supporting cast, the you know Alan Tudyk, always you know he's a pretty stalwart guy in that sense. Mark Addy, who would do go on to play a little more famous uh, medieval role in the first season of Game of Thrones as King Robert Baratheon, right? Um, and even uh, a couple of the other uh, supporting actress, uh, Berenice Berger, who plays the, uh, the handmaiden to, um, you know, Jocelyn, it, you know, got acclaimed later for the, the artist. If people remember the artist at all, <laughs> 10 years <laughs> later, um, she could have a career there. She, does a nice tail pop into my head more often than the artist? Probably. Probably, probably does. Yeah. And then I was like, I couldn't figure out where the I, I knew the blacksmith from and i was like and then i realized she plays lydia on breaking bad yep yep no i knew it when we were watching where i was like where have i seen her oh yeah but then okay you're forgetting anders one of the other main reasons to see this movie is to see paul bettany play jeffrey chaucer particularly naked jeffrey chaucer (laughs) which i do think i do think like is kind of like a memorable thing in movies oh yeah i actually think it's like it's a great small role and I think the idea of him playing, you know, like one of the major figures in English literature and his first appearance is walking naked down the road. I think it's actually like a great yeah. moment in movies. Like it's a great comic moment. And, and I think Paul Bettany's awesome. Yeah. Bettany kind of is the one supporting role in this that kind of might, even, you know, overshadow everybody yeah, else. Steal a movie. And so, without further gilding the lily, and with no more ado, I give to you the seeker of serenity, the protector of Italian virginity, the enforcer of our Lord God, the one, the only, Sir Ulrich von Lichtenstein! It's it's funny with Bedney and Ledger, is that in some ways, I look back at this movie and... It's most notable beyond the kind of beyond the anachronisms and beyond the kind of use of music. I think the thing that's most memorable is for promising something that never really came to fruition, specifically with like leisure as like the new Mel Gibson, not in terms of a person, but in terms of yeah, like as the Hollywood star, right? Like leisure took an interesting career path. If he wanted to, I think this movie proved that he could have been a new cruise or a new, you know, Brad Pitt, like he could have been one of those big Hollywood A-listers who has you know 150 million dollar movie every year come out, and Paul Bettany in this shows of like what a talent Paul Bettany is, and if you take this movie and you take Master and Commander, which are mm-hmm. they're two years apart and they're like the yeah. two sides of Paul Bettany as an actor and how good he is, and it's kind of sad that he only has kind of had a later career resurgence in the Marvel properties as Vision. And like to be fair, you know, WandaVision gives him some actual stuff to do on the on the small screen. But I'm like, man, there is a guy who should have been something. Bettany, ha- Bettany has. There's another uh, good medieval film that's overlooked, The Reckoning, with Paul Bettany and what William year Defoe. Is the it came out the year next year. I think it's a 2002. Oh, it's that, it's that far ago. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, because like this movie, like so, Bettany's comedic side, which was really not not f- developed later on. 
and then yeah master and commander with betney like just like an amazing you know supporting supporting major role right but you're like like he should have gone on to a lot more after i think these two those two films um and remember he's also in a beautiful mind the same year yep Okay, yeah, was, so this would be... It the was his breakthrough year, yeah. And he would have... But, like, that, I do that, remember, even as a kid... I even remember as a kid thinking that Chaucer was, like, absolutely hilarious. And the thing that I think the the, the screenwriters do a good job... Or Helgeland, because it's just him, does a good job of is mining that idea of, like, ooh, it's Chaucer. And even though it has no nothing really to do with Chaucer, the historical figure, as we understand him, the fact that it is Chaucer gives an excitement, I think, especially for, like... Somebody who knows just a bit about Chaucer, a bit about history. Yeah. And it connects to the title of the film. And they connect to, like, a couple things. There's, like, Well, the partner, like, right? Have you heard of my, uh, have you heard of, uh, Book of the Duchess? Anyone? Yeah. <laughs> no, but there's also the scene with the guys that Chaucer loses his clothes to, the, like, yeah, religious the par- dudes. the partner if- in Simon, the, uh, the... And he's like, the, I'm gonna make you infamous in, in literature for the rest yeah. of time. <laughs> I think the other thing, sort of building on this, one other thing I find, um useful or interesting about this movie is there's not a lot of movies that portray the middle ages in focus on just like ordinary people in the mm-hmm. middle ages um usually we're focusing on knights in just even just like the military side essentially of the middle ages and here's a movie where like you know it like there's you know the main character is aspiring to be a knight it's jousting so we still get like you know they're wearing the knight's armor they're doing all that but at the beginning of the movie there's one like I, I was like you know it's sort of interesting that we there is something um Chaucerian about its interest in sort of like regular people in the middle ages and then two early on with the humor is very strong and there's a point where you're like this movie could veer more into a monty python and the holy grail style like parody of the middle ages than it ever go than it ever does yeah but but the that sort of humor in the Middle Ages and ordinary people in the Middle Ages, these are, they're actually not that common in movies. Like, there's not a lot of Middle Ages movies, period. But, like, our Holy Grail is one of the best movies for both those things that actually is out there. Yeah. Kind of my last comment, it's, it's jumping off of that, Anton, which is, I think Game of Thrones has kind of ruined all of our visions of the Middle Ages. And this movie has a touch of the romantic vision of the Middle Ages, not only through the romance, but also the idea of, like, the aspirational aspect of a knight, the the courtship, the fact that a the love between a knight and a lady would be like, you know, the most romantic thing. Stuff like Game of Thrones just destroyed that in our popular imagination, where it's like, oh, a vision of the Middle Ages where women aren't beaten and raped and villages aren't burnt down and every knight isn't just like cutting guys' throats for fun. It's but like, wouldn't Whoa. you say that, that that, I mean, Game of Thrones is definitely emblematic of that, but it goes back, I think, to the film Braveheart, Mel Gibson in Australia, even though Braveheart includes both, right? But Hollywood didn't choose the the romance of Braveheart. No, it you, chose the brutal, uh, you know, people being disemboweled and murdering cr- people. And it's just the Middle Ages became shorthand again over the last twenty years for the you know they became the Dark Ages again. And yeah. this is the rare movie to be like, actually, we're not going to lean into that idea of the Middle Ages. We're just going to treat it as another story world that we can have actual, like, you know, good guys and bad guys mm-hmm. and all this fun. <laughs> you know, I think that I will 
I know it's one more pitch for the film, which I, I literally haven't seen in 18, 19 years, but uh, I think maybe I'll revisit The Reckoning this summer because I do think that's another film uh, that attempts to offer a portrayal of the Middle Ages that, while it's dark, uh, is not, uh, it's focused on regular people and it's not saying it's like a uh, unenlightened. People. Yeah, and it's people, right? They're putting on, um, uh, they're putting on like plays, a, right? Yeah. Like in the Middle Ages. And so it's it's a completely different view of the Middle Ages than what we would often get. And I do think, you know, I've, I've said it already sort of once, but like it's it, there is something um, like Chaucer about his vision of the Middle Ages, not not only for its interest in ordinary people, but also for its warmth, its humor, and then as well as its, you know, engagement in these um, these deep conventions. And like it, it, there's not a lot of movies out there like it. And I think that's something uh, that, you know, has a lasting value. You know, it's not the kind of movie that I'm going to put on a, a top 100 or even a top of that decade. But, you know, it's a movie that upon revisit, I was like, it's definitely, I was, you know, I was glad to revisit it. Yeah. And there's aspects that definitely hold up. So I'm glad we revisited it because, you know, I, I, uh, it was like thinking it brought me back. It was a bit of a nostalgia trip to 2001 when movies, you know, you, you kind of didn't know what you were going to get. Like there was lots of different genres, lots of different things. Um, but today it's, uh, 2021 <laughs> and we're just coming, starting our way, make our way slowly out of a global pandemic. Movie theaters have reopened in, um, many cities across the United States in Ontario. They probably will reopen in June. Is there, does, do summer movies even exist anymore? Uh, yes and no like what's what's on the is there anything on the docket for this year that seems like it'll come out slash you have an interest in well to be honest the reason i pitched us doing this episode was kind of drawing on the idea that like there's not that many new movies that interest me that much and it's it is partially still like we're still you know pandemic fallout with hollywood and and theaters and everything but Last year, there was no summer movie season, right? Like, Tenet came out at Labor Day. The year before, I remember writing that uh, Jurassic Park piece on the website, and specifically because I was like, this summer movie season is trash. There's there's nothing I'm interested in, so I'm just going to go watch old summer movies mm-hmm. because at least it gives me the entertainment that I need. And so, like, I'm looking at the... I have a list here of some of the movies yeah. coming out this summer, and there's... You know, there's some horror movies that I'm sure would be fun. Like, I'm sure The Conjuring 3 or The Forever Purge, I'll enjoy those. I like the previous ones. I'm curious about um, David Lowry's Green Knight movie, just because I love going in The Green Knight. Yeah, I'm, it'd be an suicide, interesting medieval adaptation, potentially. The Suicide Squad is probably the, like, big movie that I'm most intrigued by. But again, it's, it's, it's you know, it's like a diegetic reboot of a bad superhero movie, and it's, like, it's going to be... It's really just going to be Guardians of the Galaxy, DC, for DC, DC yeah. version, but R-rated, right? Like, yeah. yeah. So I mean, none of these things are new, right? That, I think that's the thing, Anders. You said just right off the top here. It's like back in the day, whether it was going into the movie store to rent something or going to the theater to see something, you didn't quite know what you were going to get. You might have seen a trailer. You might have seen a poster. You might know the actors and you might know the director, but you don't really know what you're going to get. And I feel like now everything is pre-digested. Everything is quantified. Everything's a piece of content or a movie is responding to some specific online niche thing. So it's very, very hard to be surprised by anything that has the bandwidth of a Hollywood picture. 
Yeah, I feel and like you, it has to be foreign or, or obscure for it to be surprising anymore. And in 2001, you could seek out the you know the film forums if you really wanted to, but with pre-social media, the saturation of initial responses wasn't there. So a movie mm-hmm. actually had a bit of breathing room, even though it was still playing for opening weekends. One comment, like we are recording this right now near the end of May. Fast and Furious 9 does not come up for one month. And I'm seeing reviews of it today. And I'm like, what is... Yeah. There What's is no on? movies in theaters, and yet the discourse remains one month prior. It just proves how, like, film criticism, filmmaking, the whole thing is so dysfunctional at this point. Who is it's, it for? Who is that review for? It's for no one. It's for no one. Like, I mean, it's interesting. It's for Google. The big, to what plug I, into the algorithm. Yeah, I do think that's going to be probably one of the biggest movies of the summer that might get some people back to theaters. But like, it's kind of funny also that it's the literally the ninth film in a series that started the same month that Night's Tale came out. It's and, true. And what's also interesting about you know a Night's Tale coming out in May two thousand and one, and we've already talked about some of the changes in that year. But the other thing I'm just thinking of is that two thousand one is the beginning of the end of the summer movie season as being the dominant season, because we get Harry Potter in November, we get the Lord of the Rings in December. And after that, Hollywood starts to say, you know what? We can make big bucks in other seasons than summer. And we can put out movies specifically just to like right, to be blockbusters, to generate box office that don't have to be just, you know, um, best picture contenders or sort of horror movies or whatever we're dumping other seasons. We can go for those big ones in other seasons. And mm-hmm. in that, that that's probably the trend of, you know, the, the next two decades to now is the end of like any distinct summer season as being the blockbuster season marvel marvel continued you know being like we'll dump our our biggest ones in the summer but there's so many things and we've talked about you know like Zack snyder in 300 making march a viable blockbuster time harry potter lord of the rings like it it, it reshapes the landscape of in terms of when you're dumping things and now in the world of not many movie theaters streaming all the time the sense of like putting out movies based on a season is almost I wonder if Hollywood even cares or is even thinking in the mindset of seasons anymore. I no. feel like twenty twelve is like the last summer of note where you had the Avengers and the Dark Knight Rises. Because it was the it was like the it was the peak of superhero in a sense, right? It was that mm. it finally achieved the summit of the mountain and it's been on that summit since. Yeah, it has <laughs> we're not on the way down yet. Or no. or is that mountain Plateau. crater? It's cratered underneath. Yeah. But the... Uh, Walking on the yep. clouds like Willy, Wiley Coyote, just like ro- running off the cliff. Yeah. Doesn't realize... We, don't, we haven't realized Once the audience says, wait, wait, wait a second, look down, Wiley, then that'll and be it, the end of know, it. Other, I think other people have said this on like uh, a Twitter or a forum, but like I'm really kind of curious as to what what's the Marvel movie that's going to be a failure. Like that finally, like, is it get, like when's it going to happen? Where people 2050. Just, yeah, aren't going to show up, you know? Well, but no. I but talking to people, I was just like, okay, I was, you know, talking to neighbors and things at the playground. People are still like watching through Marvel movies. And, oh yeah, everybody you know, I know watched Winter they're Soldier like, can't and wait Falcon. For, yeah. But like I remember like the 90s, I mean to go back to like something like Independence Day. Oh, yeah. You know? Like one do you remember the, great, the marketing the great for that? Individual blockbusters. And the and the marketing for it. That, that got man. the hype for uh, starting at the Super Bowl and then like all through the fall, you were like, what is this? What is happening? And then that, that cut, you said the star vehicle, Will Smith with the like, you know. That's what I call a close encounter. 
Um, yeah, and at that point it was like, oh, he's in this movie? What? Yeah, exactly. So, but like 2001 was kind of the last gasp of that, right? Where like there were some films that, uh, you know, I really enjoyed that year that... Um, well, were... I remember us being hyped for The Mummy Returns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we liked the first one a lot. Hey, I still... I've revisited The Mummy Returns, and I'll say that I still enjoy aspects of it quite a bit. I have watched parts The Mummy Returns are, a long time. Poor. Yeah. The Magi the Army. <laughs> exactly. Magi Army, Apocalypse. Anubis. Uh, Endless Egyptian Anubises. Apocalypse. I'm there for that. But just going back, like I, I kind of talked about some of these films in the, the, the beginning, but like that you had like uh, some really like different films. After Mummy Returns opened up that May, Night's Tale uh shrek was a huge huge hit yeah. pearl harbor moulin rouge swordfish lara croft tomb raider was the beginning of sort of video game adaptations and things you know fast and furious ai was a summer release for spielberg uh you yeah. know it, it was just it was just a different time and then it becomes the and then it becomes the franchise era right like after yep. and even the franchise movies like lord of the rings and harry potter which i think are kind of the gold standard it's mm-hmm. still set into a new phase that, you know, it's kind of like you There's could still take Harry. No, but you could take Harry Potter and you could take Lord of the Rings and you kind of put them as the Star Wars and Jaws of the new millennium and yeah. how like they're the great gold standard. But the movies that came after and try to copy them kind of ruined the industry in a respect. Yeah. Or it ruined aspects of it. And I just think, right. Anders, you, you made the comment like, is there going to be a Marvel movie that people don't like? And... You know, I don't know really anybody who's talking about Shang-Chi as being a movie they're excited about, aside from, like, the kind of perfunctory performative stuff online. But, but people even, will watch but it, though. But even if it bombed in North America, it could be a huge hit in China and, and Marvel wouldn't care, right? Like, that's the it's the kind of thing where the idea... The, the thing that makes me so um, a little bit depressed when talking about some of this stuff is not only my affection for big blockbuster kind of popular movies in general... But it's it's the fact that the idea of making a movie for an audience or caring what the actual audience that goes to see the movie thinks about it is like beside the point. It's all you know that decimal point has already been rounded onto the spreadsheet to get some investors next fall for some streaming service, or it's calculated to such a degree that like if we just put this on three hundred thousand screens in China, like you know I'm exaggerating this stuff, but it's. I, I feel like as a, the world shrinks to where it's just Disney and Universal, Amazon. like, you know, Amazon, and then, like, you get, like, Universal Paramount, like, little bits of the old studios there. Yeah. And it's just whatever's going to go on HBO Max or the other, it's... I'm not feeling optimistic about it. And even though there are movies this year that I'm super excited about, and they're big movies, like the new James Bond movie and Dune, and to be honest, mm-hmm. Dune is the movie that most people I know who even don't even like really follow movies very closely or talking about is the movie they're excited about. You know, maybe we will get some movies kind of like Lord of the Rings or, or Harry Potter again where we're like, oh, this is what the blockbuster can do. This is mm-hmm. great. But it's not the summer movie. It's not that kind of, you know, it's May weekend of May 23rd to 25th. It's the Star Wars weekend. I'm going to go to the theaters and see whatever the big movie is, knowing that I maybe I haven't seen the trailer, maybe I haven't seen the poster, maybe I don't even know anything about it, but the idea that it's a big movie opening on that weekend promised me some kind of entertainment. And, and, I don't think and, that's... and you would build the counter programming around that too, right? Like, so yeah. other films could like take a borrow a racing metaphor, Fast and the Furious. Like, you, you could drift in behind, right? So, like, you would do the like romantic comedy counter programming. Like, uh, about a boy came out the same weekend as Attack of the Clones, right? To like pick up some of that. 
Like, but it's a very different market. It's a very different audience. Obviously, yeah. The world, the world has really changed. I think that's one of the things. It's like we tend to think of like the two thousands as being a relatively stable that things haven't changed. But the world has radically changed in twenty years. Not and obviously the last fifteen months have accelerated our view of what has changed. But I think a lot of these changes can't be just pinned on the pandemic. Hollywood was starting to shift. I think, as you said, 2012, mid-2000s might be like the kind of things had fundamentally changed at that point. And it, it is depressing. I don't want to necessarily end this on like a <laughs> yeah. sour note of like, well, I'm just, but, but think, you know, on, but on the bright side, we can go back and watch a nice tale. <laughs> I think, I think we're wrestling like, um, the three of us over a number of podcasts now have been kind of wrestling with the question of like, how do we sort of approach movies as just regular film goers and also as critics, but how do we approach movies within this new framework of a like a, a streaming primary world? And so let's let's say movie theaters come back strong in North America. They're still, I don't think, are gonna be like the primary form. And what you've just mentioned, Aaron, about some of the you know, the approaches in terms of investment, um, just as you know, just as the corporatization of Hollywood altered how their approach to filmmaking now that the streaming and sort of um those sort of investment plans shapes also how they're going to start making the movies and i feel like part of the thing about the summer blockbuster was just that like it's a known thing and you go into the summer being like like what are those blockbuster movies and part of what i'm having a difficult time with for film viewing is just like like what do I have? What's my framework for guiding my viewing on some sense? Cause I don't have this seasonal anymore where it's like, okay, it's summer. These are going to be like the big sort of like, uh, mainstream audience blockbuster type vehicles. And then we're going to get something, a bunch of dramas dumped out in the fall. And then we're going to get some Oscar runners. Now it's just, it's streaming. Everything is based on the algorithm based on, you know, what I've been viewing and so it can be hard to sort of be like, okay, like, what guides my viewing at all? So hopefully you've enjoyed our conversation here about uh, the state of summer movies. And uh, maybe we've, you know, A Knight's Tale is something that you want to revisit. But if not, hopefully we got you thinking about, uh, you know, what summer movies mean and uh, what they might be. But, you know, in, let us know what summer movie are you looking forward to? Have we got it wrong? Is there something that you're like really excited to see and that might get you back into theaters uh, after the pandemic? Um, let us know. And until next time, thanks for listening. Goodbye, Mr. Moore. I bid you farewell.